June 16th, 1858. 160 years ago this Saturday, a newly nominated senator from the state of Illinois stood up and gave a speech that would come to be known as the House Divided Speech. And his name was Abraham Lincoln. This is our gospel text this morning. A powerful idea brought to us by Jesus, a house divided against itself cannot stand. For those of us who are younger, November 16th. And if you're a conspiracy theorist, note 16. 1995, 23 years ago this fall, the Pool Guy episode aired in which we heard a George divided against itself cannot stand. I had to because Paul Pano said I must make a reference to a George divided. So happy birthday, Paul. Mark's gospel has this wonderful story that presents Jesus as a home invader as a plunderer. I've never heard a song written along these lines. Jesus, the great robber, the great thief, the great burglar, the great plunderer. And yet Jesus himself uses this metaphor to describe what he's doing when he's casting out demons, what his work is. He is a man on a mission. And his mission, while not one-dimensional, clearly includes binding up Satan so he can do more work taking back what is rightfully his. I think it's interesting that at the beginning of our gospel text this morning, Jesus' family tries to seize him. They try to bind him up. Isn't that interesting? Here he is, the man on a mission to bind up the strong man, is trying to be bound up by his own family members. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything like this. They think, they hear rumors he's out of his mind. And what's interesting is that the ensuing monologue, Jesus shuts down the scribes. He basically exposes their logic for foolishness. He says, well, think about it. If what you're saying is true, we have big problems. And the smartest of the smart, the most educated people in the religious day that Jesus found himself in were absolutely shut down and stunned. And isn't there just a small fun life lesson here is the people who will be your biggest critics before the big show suddenly can't wait to talk to you afterwards. Did you notice that? At the end of Jesus' incredible monologue, the family is like, hey, can we hang out? Let's get together for coffee. You notice that, right? Then Jesus has this wonderful line. It's actually quite radical and maybe upsetting to all of us in the room. But he says, who's my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my sister? Awkward moment. I wonder how long he let that hang out there. <laughs> I thought I was out of my mind, everybody. Who's my mother, my brother, my sister? And then he says so compellingly, whoever does the will of God. Today I'm going to preach a second half of a sermon series that Brother Nate started for us last week, Sent, Our Common Life in the Spirit. And I want to start us off with this question, and that is, what is God's will? 
Did anybody grow up in a church situation in which there was a lot of pressure put on you to discern the will of God for your life? Could you wave a hand at me if you ever felt that? Ever make a decision that you thought for sure you knew what God's will was, and it was like, oh, she clearly was not it. Did anybody have that moment? (laughs) Not me, because I hit the jackpot, but I just know I had friends that... What is God's will, his desire, his wish? And I think we can say at, le- at least this. I think maybe one of the mistakes we make is that we, we think that God somehow is a Coke or Pepsi kind of God, right? That somehow he has these very specific tastes and he really, you know, gets painted into a corner by a lot of fundamentalism. So we don't want to do that this morning. But I, I wonder if this works that God's desire is a renewed creation inhabited by restored image bearers who fully enjoy him and one another. I think that works. I think the arc of Scripture, the narrative and the story of Scripture is all pointing to this idea that what God really wants It's not to abandon creation and burn it up with nuclear weapons and just have an outer space party for all of eternity. I think God ultimately is not a quitter. Can somebody say amen? God's not a quitter. He's not an abandoner. He's not a deadbeat dad. That's not our God. He's faithful. He's present. And he loves, as it says in John's gospel, to the end. And I think what that will look like is a renewed creation inhabited by restored image bearers. That's men and women, just like us, who by the grace and goodness of God have had his likeness restored in us. And what that looks like is now we can enjoy not only God, but we can enjoy one another in supernatural and wonderful ways. The good news, the gospel is the announcement that this project has already started. That may be disappointing to some people who thought the gospel was merely, you're not gonna burn in hell forever and ever. But I, have, I think it's really good news to say that the announcement Jesus is Lord is saying this project of renewed creation and restored image bearers has been launched. It's begun, and by grace, some of us are looking out into the horizon, and even though it's dark, we can see the sun coming up in the sky. I like that idea. I like the idea that the sun doesn't have to be hanging in the sky like high noon, but daytime can already begin. The light of the kingdom of God has begun to shine on our reality, and I think that's a pretty incredible thing, and Jesus inaugurates this. He begins this with his incarnation, his life, But most explicitly, Jesus launches this with his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. The resurrection being the the validation of of his crucifixion, that coming up out of the grave to newness of life that all of the baptized followers of Jesus celebrate. And what happens to us when we join him in the waters of baptism? We become members of his body. And this is very important because I think it's safe to say that what is true of the head should be true of the body. Does that make sense to us this morning? That on some level, what's so amazing about being a quote-unquote Christian is that suddenly the things that are true of Jesus to a great extent are now true of me 
and you as well. That's really hard for us to wrap our heads around, and we'll see this increasingly throughout the ages, but our oneness with Christ brings us into this unique space. Jesus, I love, I love the, um, the line in this morning in the epistle. I want to look at it. I didn't have a spot saved. If you have a Bible or an app or something, you want to look at it. It was 2 Corinthians 4. And look at this line. Such a great line. Verse 15, Paul says, Yes, everything is for your sake. And this is the phrase I want, I want to draw in on right here. So that grace, as it extends to more and more people. You see that phrase? Grace, the purpose is that grace would extend to more and more people. And the question that I have to ask myself is, how does that happen? How does grace get to more and more people? And look what it says here. It says, uh, goes on to say that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. See, I think there's this, this idea that there's a ripple effect of grace and a ripple effect of thanksgiving. Have you ever noticed that when you're around a person that is very negative, it can have a ripple effect in the room. It can have this sort of like flu effect where it gets very contagious. And suddenly we use words like energy. Have you ever been in a room where there's that person, when they walk in, they shift the energy for better or for worse? Just wave a hand so I know that I'm, you're making some sense this morning, right? I think what God is getting at here is that as grace extends to more and more people, there's this ripple effect of thanksgiving that wells up in the room. And the end game here on some level is not making sure that grace extends so everybody believes the right things. It's not so that grace extends so that we can become more moral. I feel like the Christianity I grew up in, that's what the point was. Believe the right things and do the right things. And the point was never really to talk about thanksgiving increasing. It was never like, oh, God has come to the world so that we could become thankful people, and God has sent the church into the world so that we could become thankful people, and that God would be glorified. It was never talked about that way. I mean, let's be really candid. I think some of the good work that we have to do if we're going to move into the 21st century of what God has, at least for our church, is we have to be people who are able to deconstruct to the bad to make room for the good. Does that make sense? Somebody talk to me. Does that make sense? Okay, we got to get rid of some of the bad images that we have in our mind, the reductionist images that we have in our mind. So much of our work in church has been about cultivating fear in the hearts of men and women. And here we are serving the God who is love, who casts out all fear. And we're trying to get everybody, scare the hell out of them, literally. And when was the last time we heard sermons talking about the point of this is that grace would expand from one person to another person. That more and more people would be caught up in the grace flu. They'd be infected with this sense of God's essence and goodness, and it would result in thanksgiving. We're doing a study in Ephesians, and uh, in the fifth chapter, which I didn't get to look at this morning because we just got rabbit trailed off, there's this section that 
Well, let's look at it. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 3. This is a real fire and brimstone section. You ready for this? Good. Okay, great. (laughs) I'll hold the Bible like this, and I'll stand on the edge of the pulpit. But fornication, everybody gasp, (gasps) and impurity of any kind must not even be mentioned among you as is proper among saints. Entirely out of place is obscene, silly, and vulgar talk. When I was a kid, we said coarse jesting. Don't you tell that joke. Look at this. But instead, instead of what? Instead of fornication, instead of impurity, instead of crude language, what's what's Paul's solution? Instead, let there be thanksgiving. Wait, what? Are we suggesting that all of the ills, the interpersonal problems, it's not a matter of simply, well, stop doing that. (laughs) You remember that SNL skit with Bob Newhart? Just stop it. Just stop it. That was the advice of the psychiatrist. Just stop it. It doesn't work. Can anybody say, yeah, I know, it doesn't work. (laughs) Anybody done a bad thing and said, I'm determined I'll never do that bad thing again? Anybody? Okay. Does it work? No, it does not work. What Paul is saying here is, you know what is the, 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 the cure to what ails us? Thanksgiving. I said that loud on purpose. Don't worry, I'm not getting carried away. I just wanted to make a point. As grace expands, thanksgiving wells up to the glory of God. And Paul's saying, that's the point. That's what we're shooting for. If I could maybe make a loose connection between this and the gospel, this is part of the reason Jesus bound the strong man so that grace could be set loose among humans. Incredible. But the question remains, how does grace move from person to person? Can I ask you a personal question that you are just going to think about now? How did the grace of God get to your life? What's your story? Was it a Sunday school teacher? Was it a grandma? Was it a counselor? Was it a preacher? Was it a coworker, a neighbor? How did the grace of God get to your life? When I ask you that question and you start thinking, and I'm going to ask you with 100% participation to respond, how many of you say, I can think of a person who played a part in that? Could you raise your hand if you can think of a person who played a part in that? Please, and hold them up. Okay. Overwhelming number of people have their hands raised. And that's because this is the way God has ordinarily designed things to work. Jesus ascended and he left his body here. Look over at Acts 1.8. This is a verse that I know you're familiar with, but I want you to, if you can, physically look at it because I think it will affect us if we look at it. Acts 1.8. Jesus has been asked by his disciples leading into this section, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? This idea that political power was the end game. And what Jesus says in Acts 1.8 should have all of our attention this morning. Well, let's go back to 7. He said, it's not for you to know the times 
or periods that the Father has set by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Have you heard a preacher preach this text before? I'm guessing you have. This is a very popular one. And I'm bringing this out intentionally because we're a few weeks removed from Pentecost Sunday. And these sermons are strategically placed near Pentecost Sunday for a reason. And it's because the descent of the Spirit is always connected to mission. Think about it. You might remember the story of Jesus' baptism. He comes up out of the water and it says the heavens are opened up and two very unique things happen. One is they hear a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. But do you remember the other odd thing that happens? Somebody can say it out loud if you do. A dove descends upon Jesus. And that dove, of course, represents who? The Holy Spirit. Right on the other side of this baptism, pronouncement, and descent, it says the Spirit led, or in some translations, drove Jesus into the wilderness. In other words, Jesus gets sent on mission once the Spirit comes on him. 30 years he works for his father, tradition would tell us. But when the Spirit comes, he's instantly moved into an uncomfortable place to begin the work of the Father. The reason I wanted you to look at this text is because of what it doesn't say. You'll receive power, check, and look at this. You will, what's the next word? You will be my witnesses. You notice what it doesn't say in the text. You will witness for me. You notice that? He does not say, you will go out into the streets and annoy your friends and neighbors, asking them if they know where they'd go if they died. And everybody said, thank God. Thank God. And I don't want to make too much fun because I think most, or I want to think that most of those people are very well-intentioned. And sometimes through works of amazing miracles and power, people actually come to Christ in a wonderful way because of that. But that's not what this text says. The text doesn't say you will receive power to go out and start doing witnessing. He says you will receive power and you will be. In other words, he's saying that the descent of the Holy Spirit on the life of the believer makes you something. It gives you an identity. It imparts an identity, and the identity is that of a witness. The identity is that of somebody who's been sent on mission. The identity is to share in the existence of Jesus. The same dove that descends at the Jordan descends in Jerusalem. The same dove that, if you will, equips Jesus to do the work of ministry qualifies his people, his body, to do the work of ministry. And what did Jesus say about himself? Well, Jesus, I, let's take his own words. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus says in the 43rd verse, I must proclaim the good news of the kingdom of God to the other cities also. Look at this. For I was sent for this purpose. 
over in Luke 19. In verse 10, this is at the tail end of the story of Zacchaeus. He says, Jesus speaking, for the Son of Man came to, that word there is a purpose word, right? This is why I'm here, to seek out and to save the lost. Now, if you're getting uncomfortable, just exhale right now. Because I don't believe God has called everybody to be street evangelists and that now your goal this week, we're not going to like call out a person this week and you're going to get them at work somehow and corner them and have a little shtick. That's not what any of this is about. This is to step back from that and say, Jesus was a man on a mission. Jesus was a man who knew his purpose and he knew that his purpose was outward focused. It was a sent purpose. He was going somewhere with his life and he knew it. And when the spirit falls on us, whether we like it or not, we join him in that reality. We become men and women of mission, men and women of purpose. And friends, listen, if grace got to your life through a person, shouldn't we be willing to at least return the favor somehow? Shouldn't we be willing to pass it forward? You see, the calling of the followers of Jesus is to be something in the earth, among several things, but to be witnesses means that by our attitudes and our responses to people. To be witnesses by our honesty and our loyalty and our gossip-freeness. by being free from the need to retaliate when people wrongly accuse us, our witness in being reliable and faithful, our yes is actually yes, our no is actually no. When somebody asks us if we're going to do something, we don't have to swear on our mother's grave that we're actually going to do it because they believe us. We're witnesses by our stories of personal rescue. We're witnesses as we can just faithfully report, I once was blind, but now I see. We're witnesses because what the heart is full of, the mouth is bound to speak out. Is your heart full of love for Jesus? Is your heart thinking about his kingdom and his purposes and grace catching and spreading like wildfire in your job, in your neighborhood, in your home? If that's what's in our heart, that's what's going to come out of our mouth. We're witnesses in that what we talk about is filled with truth, but also filled with hope. We live in a world that literally is dying around us. Suicide has again captured our attention. And so many people are hurting and discouraged. Some people are filled with fear, wondering, who are the people in your life that are vulnerable and we don't even know it? If there ever was a time where our world needed people who were hopeful people and not at the expense of honesty, it's now. Our witness comes as we pray. When was the last time we prayed for the lost of the world? When we pray the daily office, in the morning and in the evening, there's a section of prayer that's called the prayer for mission. And we pray that all the peoples of the earth will come to a knowledge of Jesus. 
We pray that men and women everywhere will be brought into the church. Friends, that sort of prayer will actually lead your heart into the place I'm talking about. If you can sit here and say, Pastor Mark, I am so busy. I'm so tired. I've got so much going on. The last thing I have time to do is sit down and pray for missions and pray for lost people. I'd encourage you to try it. Impose on your schedule. Try it and watch how God changes your heart. So much of prayer we think about is changing other people and changing situations. The bulk of prayer for me has been changing me. I mean, I pray that he changed Danielle and it's working, but I pray for me too. If you're married, you know that that joke makes a whole lot of sense because nothing will bring you to the end of yourself like marriage. And it's funny and it's true. Pastor Brent can hear me right now. By the way, he didn't leave the church, just so y'all know. He really was very intentional. He's like, please tell them I haven't moved. He's just really luxuriating in Italy. So feel bad for, pray for Pastor Brent that he'll do faithful missions work in Tuscany. I hope he's watching me right now and he can sense the bitterness in my heart. Have you ever found that when you pray for a person who's wronged you, when you pray that God will really get him and sick him and that the hound of heaven happens to be a pit bull and that he'll grab onto somebody and really give it to them good? Have you ever noticed that when you start praying for that person, even selfish, awful, petty prayers, when they're prayed sincerely, awfully, and sincerely, pettily, that the Holy Spirit has a way to turn that prayer right back around on us and it's not very long until we're sitting under the glorious weight of a conviction blanket? Have you ever had that experience? And the next thing you know, you're changing as a person. What I'm saying is if that's true in our interpersonal relationships, how much more true would it be in terms of having a heart for the lost, having a heart for the world? I think I can say safely, but I'm going to say for the record in this house, this is not about condescending to the quote-unquote lost. Can we repent of that sort of thing? And this is part of what I want to bring out this morning is that Christians on mission are not up here somehow coming down to the outsiders. That's not it at all. As a matter of fact, here's what I would say. The existence of the unbelieving person is really a source of fulfillment for the believer because without an unbeliever, we have no mission. Think about this. If God just wanted people to be in his presence, he would scoop everybody up into his presence. My dad used to say it this way, and it was back, you know, he, my dad was, you may meet him someday. He's not watching, so I can say this. Uh, he's not very politically correct. So he would say things like, you know, if God just wanted you to go to heaven, we'd shoot you at the altar call. <laughs> so now you know where I get it from, and I don't say that. And everybody said, thank God. Who's this person that moved from New York? What am I getting at? God has left us here. He's placed us here. Remember Jesus' prayer in John 17? He says, I pray that you don't take them out of the world. Why? Because our very identity is caught up in the world. I'll put it to you this way. Is a light more significant in a room full of lights or in a dark room? I fear that much of our light 
as believers is mere decoration and doesn't serve a useful purpose because it never gets into darkness. Can I say that one more time? Lights, we have a lot of lights in this room, and if we shut some of them off right now, nothing would change except the ambience for those who are paying attention. You are the light of the world. That's what Jesus said. And the question is, if our light went out, who would notice? If we're just a light in the midst of a chandelier of lights, we can now look and see if we have any bulbs. Well, we got some bulbs out. Seriously, let's look at that one. <laughs> We've got some bulbs out. Did you notice that when you walked in here this morning? No, you didn't notice it. Why? Because there's so many lights on in the room. And so much of our purpose was meant to be light in darkness, and we're settling for being a bulb in a chandelier. Our identity is tied up in the outsiders. In other words, we need, now everybody's looking around the room for lights that are out. Okay, let's stop and look. Listen, our identity as followers of Jesus is tied up inextricably in the outsiders and our faithful ministry to them in Jenks, in East Tulsa, in East Africa. This is what the church does because it's our identity. And let me tell you, we are fulfilled in meaningful and deep ways. Not superficial, that was fun, but we are fulfilled as Christians when we are faithful to our identity. I mean, think about what Jesus does say in the Sermon on the Mount. He goes through the Beatitudes. Blessed are the, blessed are the, blessed are the. And then he says, you're the salt of the earth, and if the salt has lost its flavor, what good is it? You are the light of the world, but if you're under a cover, what good is it? I mean, this is Jesus right on the end of that great list. And if, if I've offended you or made you uncomfortable, good. It's what I was shooting for. I just didn't want to say it up front. This is not the work of super saints. This is not the work of professionals. If that was the case, Christianity would have never expanded beyond Jerusalem. The fact that we know so little about the evangelism of the early church is itself evidence that ordinary people were doing it. Origen, you've heard his name here in this church many times. One of the fathers of the church, very controversial, but listen to Origen's description of witness in the early church. He says, workers in wool and leather, laundry workers, and the most illiterate bucolic yokels. <laughs> I'm going to say that again. <laughs> the illiterate and bucolic yokels who would not dare say anything at all in front of their more intelligent masters would pull aside children and would say, listen to me, don't listen to them. Let me tell you about Jesus. We're grateful for the Pauls. We're grateful for Athanasius. 
We're grateful for Irenaeus. We're grateful for all these great men and the untold women who stood up as teachers and doctors of theology and brought us into a fuller understanding of the reality of God. But friends, we are here because of the bucolic yokels. We're here because of laundry workers and waitresses and carpenters and painters and people who, when they're sitting in the presence of profound intellectuals, don't want to say anything because they know they're not smart enough. But they had the courage to open their mouth. They had a sense of identity that says, I'm not just a part of something. I'm here to expand something. And this is why coming out of the celebration of Pentecost, we need to be mindful that the spirit we celebrate is the same spirit of Jesus. Ascending spirit, a spirit on mission, a spirit that is empowering, not for our own pleasure, but for the good of our neighbor. It is the spirit of love, and therefore it is a spirit that is outward looking. We don't want to be navel gazers, staring down into our spiritual belly buttons, wondering how come our soul is so dry and parched. We want to step up in faith and realize that the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in our bodies as well. And we're here to seek the good of neighbors near and far. Because in fact, every one of us, I think every one of us, I can say confidently, is in this room this morning because someone knew they were sent. Let's pray.